0: Isaiah chapter 53, and as we read, we remember that this is God's word, and so we can trust it completely. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. We thank God for his word to us this evening.
1: You you might know the uh, words from this song, I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful word, Louis Armstrong. And uh, we we know that, that there, there are times that the world really just causes our heart to sing, but there are times that we find the world just to be entirely marked by suffering. And it raises the question, as we've just seen, where is God in a messed up world? We're going to explore this this evening a little bit. We've looked at this a number of times down through the years, but it's so important that we have this clear in our minds. Can I say that if you're here tonight and you're in the middle of something that's really sore and hard, and maybe many of us are... Then in a way, this is probably not going to be all that helpful for you. You, you know, I just I listened to something this week and it said, you know, if 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 that's us, the, the, the right response in that is just silence and to be a for, for, for a Christian to speak to when they're spoken to, in a sense. A, 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 because that's that's it's just so hard, isn't it, to hear anything whenever we're in the midst of all the pain. But but part of what we want to try and do tonight, in a sense, is sort of top up the reservoirs if, if we're in a position where we're able to do that, to, to try and give us a bit of a framework to, to approach some of these things, to top up some of the reservoirs if uh, we're, we're able to hear that, so that, that sometimes then whenever things do happen to us, we're able to think about them in a way that is in parallel with what the Bible says, which is then actually, I think, a lot more helpful. And um, what we're trying to do then, therefore, is, is to give us just a, a little bit of a, a basic Christian framework for this answer, and then we'll maybe fill some of that detail out in, in a few questions uh, later on. We're using a, a number of uh, little titles that we resource called Porterbrook have produced uh, on this, and a few things we want to say. First of all, the world is messed up. We're asking the question, where is God in a messed up world? Well, the first thing we want to acknowledge is that the world is messed up. Because there are some who believe that the world uh, w- was not designed and created by anyone, but or certainly not by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it's just a, a result of chance. And if that, is the, if that is what we think, then there's really no point in asking this question. That's really important to, to underline. It's just the way it is. There was a quote up there by Richard Dawkins that said, some will get lucky and some will get hurt. So if, if, the, if the world is just a result of chance, then there's no real point in asking the question. The very fact, however, that we do rail against suffering, that we, we watch that video and we just go, oh, what a broken world we live in. The very fact that we feel that, or, or, or we find ourselves in a difficult situation and we go, oh, it shouldn't be this way. The very fact that we feel that, it, it, it is pointing us in a different direction. It's pointing us to the fact that this world is made by a creator, and, and that, therefore, there is an ought in our world. It ought to be different. And, and it's a real weak point, I think, in those who, who really don't feel that there's any uh, direction in terms of our world at all, because we don't live as if, nobody lives as if there's no good or, or evil. We, we live as if the suffering that is around us and within us actually matters. And the fact that we wrestle with that question points us to the fact that we live in a world that was made. Now, Christianity claims that not just that the world is made by God, but also that it is messed up. Absolutely what our title says tonight. So whenever we read the story of the Bible, we find that God made this world beautiful and good. Louis Armstrong could have really sung this song in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, and it would have really absolutely made sense. But as the story of the Bible moves on, we get to Genesis 3, and we find that, that Adam and Eve try to overthrow God's rule. They, they basically go to God, clear off, we want to be boss. And, and as they do that, that has all sorts of drastic effects. Everything sort of changes. And their relationship with God is affected. They, they see God as an enemy. They doubt his goodness. They hide from him. Their relationship with each other is affected. Strife and, and, and pain enters their interpersonal relationship. And even, and I'm not sure we fully understand how this is the case, but even their relationship with the created order, with the world is affected. So that we find that the world is groaning for, for God to fix it. So, so why is this messed up world messed up? It's messed up on the very largest scale, Christians would say, because we have rebelled against God, because we have messed it up. It's, it's messed up because of sin. So, so that's, why, that's why you lock your door. That's why you insure your car. That's why there are certain places that you, you're thinking, is it safe to go there at night? Um, that's why we get sick, that's why we sit here and we remember something that somebody said that has hurt us. That's why people today are hungry. That's why children are dying from dirty water on the largest scale because we've messed up this world. It's because of this rebellion. And that's that's the very first thing that we want to say. Now, the question is, where is God in this messed up world? Because, you know... It, If God had made this perfect world and we'd messed up, he would have been absolutely within his rights to just wash his hands off it, to to push it to the side the way that you would push to the side a failed cake or a failed uh, project. And yet he has not done that. He has not abandoned it at all. And that means because God is involved in our world, we're gonna see how God is involved in our world in a moment, that means our second thing is that suffering may not be pointless, okay? Suffering may not be pointless because he, 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 here's the, the way that this question is often explored. People say something like, well, if God is good and all-powerful, why does he not end suffering? We, we, we saw that in the clip. Uh, the fact that there is suffering tends to lead people to say, well, either God's not good or he's not all-powerful. But that misses out on one other, at least one other possibility, and that is that God may be all good and all powerful, but have a reason why suffering exists here and now. Maybe it's a reason that we simply don't understand or we can't comprehend, but just because we cannot see how it fits doesn't mean that He cannot see how it fits, now, that's very much the sort of the direction the Bible points us in. So, for example, it tells us loads and loads of stories of different people. Uh, t- tell you the story of Joseph, for example. Joseph, man in the Old Testament, uh, young man, dreadful time, sold into slavery by his brothers. You think that your family has problems? Uh, well, well, Joseph's family had many problems. They, they, they beat him up, throw him in a pit, and whenever they realize they can make some money off him, they, they, they sell him to some slave traders, think they'll never see him again. And and just when his life seems to be making some progress, he ends up in prison. And, And yet, all of these things are working together, we find, at the end of his story, to do all sorts of amazing things, to save hundreds of thousands of people from famine, to, uh, to, to rescue a people and bring them down into Egypt so that they will be safe as they multiply, all sorts of amazing things. So at the end of his life, he's able to look back on his life and he's able to say, you meant it to for evil. He talks to his brothers at this point. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. that's an amazing statement, but he's able to see in his life that this very painful experience in his life, very painful life, was at the same time meant for evil by his brothers who were bad at that point, but at the same time meant for good by God. Job. Job's the same. Job's story is just dreadful. In the space of a few verses in the Bible, we find that he just loses everything. His family is wiped out. His possessions are wiped out. His health goes. His suffering is immense. And he enters into discussions with God, and God doesn't really give many answers. In fact, God, at one point, basically puts the question to him and says, "'Who are you to, to ask me questions?' And we, the readers, as we read his story, we're able to see that, that that Job's story is part of a great cosmic story that's going on that displays God's glory and, and, and highlights Job's faithfulness. But Job doesn't see it, and, and he's called to trust God in the dark. He's not like Joseph, who sees where it all fits together. He doesn't. But he's called to hang on to God in the midst of it. C.S. Lewis, great Christian writer, said something like this. He said, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. It's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he, God, shook his head, not in refusal, but in waving the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. So there's a a certain strand that runs through the Bible that says, some of these questions are just above us, and we're not going to be able to grasp them. And that's really frustrating, but it seems to be what the Bible saying. Another biblical example comes from the life of Paul. He's got this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. Uh, possibly an illness. It's possibly some sort of weakness within his life. And Paul had prayed, and Paul was, like, Paul was possibly the, the greatest Christian who ever lived if we could ever describe anybody like that. And he had prayed that God would take away this particular problem that he had three times, and God had very clearly refused him. He was using it, this suffering in his life, he was using it in a particular way to do a work in him that appears God couldn't do any other way, as it were. And, and what we learn from that is that it may be that, that some of those things in our lives that are especially sore are being allowed by God for reasons that we cannot comprehend, but God is using them to do something in us and for us that otherwise couldn't be done. Some, some years ago, I came across something that had been written by a Christian author, and, and he said, that if we knew everything God knew and we were as wise as God and as good as God, then we would choose for the world to be run as it is at the moment. In other words, none of what we see is pointless or hopeless. And at times we might see what God is doing as we look back on it, but most of the time we've not got that insight and we have to hold on to God even though these things are very sore for us. So suffering, that's the second thing that the Bible says to us. Suffering might not be pointless. If God is still involved in the world, then there's purpose in all that goes on. Third thing to say, God has done something about suffering. God has, has done something about, about suffering. Very often the cry goes up, why doesn't God do something? And, and what we're gonna see here is that the Bible sort of says to us, he has and he will. What does he not do What he doesn't do is he doesn't take away all the causes of suffering immediately. Now, we instinctively think that would be a really, really good thing to do. Why does God not just take away all the bad people? Why does he not deal with dictators and abusers and murderers? But the question is, where does he stop? Where should he draw the line? Because the, que- the, the, the problem is that, that we are all those who have caused suffering. We've hurt others in one way or another, or by our words and our actions. We are those who are sitting here amongst the richest 10% of the world, and yet there are those who are dying in poverty. We are those who who grab a bargain at the expense of some underpaid worker in Thailand who has made the t-shirt, we are those who upgrade our smartphones. That means that we contribute to the terrible conditions in the cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where children as young as seven are, are mining today. So, so, you see, we're part of the problem. And if God were to immediately take away all the causes of suffering in our world, that would be the end of us. So God doesn't do that. But what what God does do in Psalm 103 tells us that He has found a way as it were to separate us from our sins to treat us differently from our sins as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us he says and that takes us to the story of Jesus he's found a way you see to to deal with us without blotting us out it's tremendously costly but the cost rests on him because it gets us to the story of Jesus. And we read earlier, Peter read earlier for us, Isaiah 53, that was written 700 years before Jesus. And it's it's written with a remarkable insight as to what his life and death would be like. It tells us that he was somebody who knew all about suffering. So, Listen to some of the things it says, Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So Jesus, familiar with suffering. But the amazing thing is Jesus doesn't only suffer because he came into this broken world. Isaiah 53 tells us something much more remarkable. Verse four, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that has brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So so he suffers with us because he comes into our world, but he also suffers for us. He suffers because God lays our sins on him. So he not only suffers because of sin, he suffers for sin. We might say he suffers because of our sin, but he also suffers because of God. God lays this on him. It was the Lord's, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer So, you see, rather rather than step back from a a suffering world, Jesus steps into it, and it's the Father's will, and this suffering is not pointless, but it is redemptive. It, It saves. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of a soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So Jesus will consider that all that he went through, if you ever want to see someone suffer you, just read the story of the cross. Jesus will consider, Jesus considers that all his suffering is worth it because that's how he rescues people like us. So this cuts across some of the charges that we might lay against God. We might say, God, you don't care. You're not interested in the fact that, that I'm suffering And the the Bible's answer to that would point us to the cross and say, look, I have acted in response to suffering. He didn't stay away. It means that he is the God who rescues. So so that doesn't tell us all the reasons why suffering does happen, but it tells us one of the big reasons that it doesn't happen. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us because he came. Another thing to say, God will do. God has done something about suffering. God will do something about suffering because the story's not finished. Really important to know. He he is working to bring an end to suffering. On Sunday nights here, on other occasions, we've been looking at Revelation. Uh, At the end of Revelation, it gives a great vision of how things are all gonna wrap up, as it were. And it says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So there's the end of the story, as it were. And, and, and this is what God is going towards. We're in the midst of this story at the minute. And, and if God is working towards that end, we've got to see today in the light of that. See, I came across an incredible quote by C.S. Lewis. He, he said this. Um, they, they say... They say of some temporal suffering, so people say of of things that happen now, they say of some temporal suffering, no future blessing could ever make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. He's saying that God has something so incredible planned that even the most painful thing will turn into a glory. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really, really hard to hang on to. If you're here tonight and you're sore, it's, it's incredibly hard to hang on to. We want to, to look at our world around us and, and, and our own lives and say, how can you do that, Lord? We, we don't know that. But, but what he says is that one day he will end all suffering and, and will cause us to see that, that he's done all things well. What we're doing is we're sketching out what the Bible says about suffering one last thing that wouldn't be complete if we didn't, if we didn't sort of touch it. And that is that, that meantime, so here and now, suffering is a call to repent. As we, as we wait for God to finish everything, suffering now is a call to repent. You, you, you heard the little quote on the video or saw it from C.S. Lewis. Um, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our, in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rise a de- dead world, a deaf world. So Jesus was once um asked why some people had had suffered they were they were both those who had suffered because of um, a sort of an atrocity a, a, a war crime, and there were those who had suffered because of a natural disaster, an accident a tar had fallen on them and, and they were basically saying, you know so whose fault was it was it their fault? was it the people who built the tar was it the, was it the army's fault and, and jesus sort of shifted the question. He said, do you think they were more guilty than all the other people living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, we've got to see the brokenness of this world around us as a reminder that this world is in rebellion and is suffering because of that. And and suffering reminds us that our hope in this world is to turn to God because He's the one who has come into our world. And as we turn to Him, we remember that this is who we're coming to, the one who is committed to us in our suffering. And in our world, He sends His Son so that we might be rescued. So, He's not far off. He's up close. So, there's a basic Christian framework. We can answer this question all sorts of different ways, but there's a, a basic Christian framework to say, here is a Christian approach to suffering. Now, let me say, it, 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 it's not an easy answer, but it is better than anything the world has to offer. The world can only say, well, it's, it's meaningless or... or, or it's just the way the universe is. But, but here's what the Bible very broadly says. World is messed up. It's not as originally intended. God is at work. It means that suffering's not pointless because God is working in this world. He's entered into the suffering world in Jesus Christ. He's working towards a time when suffering will be no more. And, and meantime, the presence of suffering should cause us to see the depth of evil and need that there is in our heart. And cause us to turn to him.